0: The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. So the talk is titled Changing Class Consciousness, How Workers um, Become Fit to Rule. And I think it's, I'm very excited to give the talk. Uh, actually, a lot of the talks that I've been to throughout the conference have sort of taken on this question in a number of different ways, which to me sort of brought home how important the question of change there's means on spontaneity and organization, do movements need leaders, that all kind of deal with this kind of um, question. Um, and I think that for those of us that are interested in change, um, those who recognize that there's something fundamentally wrong with our society, um, we should have something to say about how exactly change happens um, in our society. And I think there's already many ideas out there um, about this process, and I'm sure people in this room have their own ideas and questions um, about this. But if we don't come to a shared understanding um, or framework for understanding how exactly change happens, then quite frankly, there's no way to start um, um, this process at all. So um, first, I just want to say that our understanding of change is fundamentally linked to what our end goal um, is. So for Marxists, it's um, revolution. That's why the talk is titled Our Ends with how workers become fit um, to rule. So our, for us, understanding change is not an intellectual exercise, but a guide guide to action. Um, And I wanted to first talk about kind of what I think the most common ideas already out there are um, about how change happens, in particular how people's ideas um, change. Um, And then I'll spend the bulk of the um, presentation discussing and defending um, the Marxist approach to the question, and more specifically, I want to discuss one, sort of historical materialism, and the dialectic, um, more on that later if those words aren't already in your kind of vocab. Um, no worries. Um, two, the role of ideology in society. So where do our ideas come from? How do they change? What is class consciousness exactly? Um, and then three, end by discussing the role um, of struggle and revolution and fundamentally changing society. Um, and the subjective role the organization plays within that process, um, hopefully answering um, the question of the the talk. Um, So let's get started. Um, I think there are three very common sense ideas um, that most of us hold or did hold at some time about how ideas and people change. So I'm going to start with the worst, which is that they don't um, actually change at all. Um, And I think that this can take the form of the kind of men are from Mars, the women are from Venus kind of type of talk that sees human beings as sort of fundamentally unalterable, um, genetically wired to behave in certain ways. And I think its conclusions, um, regardless of, of the starting point for those ideas, um, are actually profoundly um, profoundly cynical. Um, and that while there are many on the far right that subscribe to this belief, and it's really kind of the, the worst justification um, for oppression in our society as people are sort of genetically inferior, um, the the idea is also held by some people um, on the left Um, a good example of this sort of continuously rise um, in feminist circles regarding whether men are kind of inherently aggressive, um, violent etc. So Susan Brown Miller goes as far as um, arguing that rape is sort of a a condition that underlies all aspects of male female um, relationships Um, the logic of this argument is that there is something again unalterable in certain people's um, behaviors um, and that and ideas um, that serve as an explanation for the oppression um, we all experience um, today. I don't find it totally useful to equate the kind of far right and the left necessarily on this question, but I do find it useful to expose how equally damaging this framework is for those who are concerned about changing the world. Um, Because obviously if people are fundamentally unalterable, um, then then change is just out the window um, entirely. Um, So the second... Um, common sense idea regarding change um, and how ideas change is is kind of the opposite of the one I just laid out. So instead of human beings being fundamentally unalterable, we're actually kind of all just sheep, um, kind of following um, the latest Fox News lie, blinded by bling, um, and ready to kind of do or buy anything that television tells us um, to do. And, of course, we are profoundly influenced by television and advertising. Um, And we have to be quite sober at times about where people's ideas are at in society around specific questions. Um, But we have to start by, I I believe, we have to start by rejecting the idea that somehow working-class people um, are not capable of independent and complex thought. (laughs) Um, I actually find that this argument as the explanation um, for why a certain individual or group of people aren't more progressive or radical actually being quite elitist. Um, it's pretty much always used to describe working class or poor people. Um, and unfortunately you hear this in New York City a lot um, when we talk about those kind of crazy Midwest you know, people or that kind of whole other section of the state that somehow just doesn't quite um, get it. Um, and the danger of this is that it actually writes people off entirely for being agents um, in their own um, liberation, and then it somehow becomes up to this certain group of people who have magically broken free um, from this kind of sheephood to then lead people um, to, their, to their salvation. Um, and then the third um, kind of common sense idea um, is that people's ideas change primarily through sort of a, a gradual accumulation of better um, ideas. So basically that injustice is a result of ignorance or lack of knowledge about the rest of the world and other people. Um, and again, of course, there is some truth to this, that if you're never getting the opportunity to leave the country, um, or you grow up in a very segregated community, <coughs> that will impact your understanding of the world um, around you. Um, but I work in a public school, um, and I think that this idea is very, very dominant um, in the public school system, which is that if people just had better ideas, or were more educated, then people's lives would somehow be fundamentally different. And I think that it has some progressive elements to it. One, the right to equal education, right? I think that's kind of where it comes um, from. Um, And according to this framework, or what I would call sort of an idealist um, understanding of change, the primary role of those interested in changing the world is just to educate, educate, educate. Just to go out there um, and do that. Um, But I guess a couple questions. Does that mean that anyone is then able to break free from exploitation and oppression just by reading more? Or learning more about the world or that those responsible for someone else's oppression just need to be convinced um, that they're doing something wrong and the danger of this is that it begins to blame individuals um, for the life they live not the system as a whole namely how the economic system that we live in actually produces the conditions of exploitation um, and oppression so If these explanations for how ideas and individuals change don't hold up, then what does? Um, Being a revolutionary means not only thinking that another world is necessary, but that it's possible. Um, This means believing that human beings are not just capable of change in our individual lives and individual choices that we make on a day-to-day level, but that we're also capable of much, much larger, um, even revolutionary change. And that means that all the people we take the subway with, that we work with, that we live with, are capable um, of overthrowing and replacing capitalism with a society guided by the interest of human need. And that can be a bit daunting. Like, I really do think about that on the subway (laughs) and the way it'll work behind being like, these are the people, you know what I mean? Like, this is like our side. How are we gonna organize? How are we gonna convince all these people? And so I want to spend the rest of the talk discussing sort of um, a Marxist approach to change in class consciousness, because I think it takes more than just kind of having that faith in humanity that you kind of need on the subway sometimes, being like, you know, we're going to do, you know, we're going to do this, you know, you need more than just having that kind of faith in humanity, or just kind of being an optimistic person um, about life in general to be effective. I think you have to be convinced that change is possible on a mass scale, um, and understand how capitalism's demise is actually built into capitalism. Um, itself. Um, So I'm going to really get started. Um, So um, dialectical materialism, um, also referred to as historical materialism, um, developed from two opposing views, which we just kind of (coughs) briefly touched on, which is materialism on the one hand and idealism on the other. Materialism is kind of the sheep idea, you know, that we're kind of all just direct products of our environment an idealism kind of being that we just need better ideas, the primary way things change just through the, the propagation of um, ideas. Um, Marx did believe that um, human beings were product of their environment, but that their relationship to that environment was, was interactive. That it was both you were both shaped by your, um, by your environment, but also capable of shaping um, that environment as well. So Heraclitus, and I think that's how you pronounce it, a Greek philosopher is the first recorded thinker um, who sort of stressed this more dialectical approach and he wrote, everything flows, strife is the father of all things. The fairest harmony is born of things different and discord is what produces all things. So this is, I think this is <coughs> critical, which is that contradiction, um, the struggle between two competing things is the source of all change in society that constant change in movement is actually the natural order of things, not the opposite. Um, So George Lukacs, um, who was a leading revolutionary in the early 1900s, and wrote extensively on class consciousness, um, defined dialectics um, in this way. And there's a a great book that he wrote called The History of Class Consciousness, but he also wrote a book called Lenin, A Study on the Unity um, of His Thought, that's also quite good. And he wrote in that book, The basis of the Marxist dialectic is that all limits in nature are simultaneously determinate and mutable. That there is not a single phenomenon which under certain conditions cannot be transformed into its opposite. So basically, in the struggle between two opposites, something entirely new is possible. And this is dialectics, sort of in a nutshell. Um, Marx believed that change was constant and that we are both... Product of the of a history of the conditions that come before us, but also capable of creating history um, on different terms. Um, and in fact, this kind of capability for change and changing the world, um, Marx argues, is what separates us from other animals. Um, and he says, the species nature of animal is an eternal repetition; that of humans is transformation, development, and change. So this is what Marx called our sort of our ability to consciously labor, meaning that our ability to interact with and transform the world around us through our labor, that's what makes us human. So we have opposable thumbs, tools, technology, art. This actually separates us from other um, animals. Um, and but Marx also argued, um, and this is another quote, that that, we make, um, that humans make <coughs> their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under circumstances chosen by themselves, but under circumstances directly encountered, given, and transmitted from the past. Um, So history is not something that just kind of happens to us, but is the um, activity of real people um, interacting and struggling against each other and the world um, around us. So put very simply... Um, and sorry to be repetitive, but I actually think a dialectic is not a, an a, easy thing necessarily to get um, one's head around. To so put very simply, that change is a product of struggle within a contradiction. Um, and this is why revolutionary socialism is different um, than what I would call sort of an evolutionary socialism or, or change approach. That eventually ideas of society will just slowly or inevitably evolve um, into better ones. And I think you hear this a lot actually around gay rights, um, which is sort of like eventually enough people will just kind of get it, you know what I mean? And people sort of reread um, the history of the civil rights movement at the same time. It's something people just kind of came around to their senses and saw um, sort of sort of injustice and changed their minds about um, thing. So um, Marxists believe that ideas don't evolve. They actually explode. Um, they tend to change quite dramatically and suddenly, both on an individual and collective um, scale. So, um, again change being the product of contradictions, I'm gonna talk about a few major contradictions that are capitalism. Um, One is that it's an economic system that both creates the conditions of exploitation and oppression, it literally can't survive survive without either of those things, but that these conditions also produce resistance capable of bringing it down. It creates a class of people, um, the working class that not only have an interest in overthrowing (laughs) capitalism, but are positioned within capitalism to actually do so. Um, It's a contradiction that I think that can be hard, um, to get your head around so that capitalism inherently produces the potential for its own demise. Um, therefore, the struggle for socialism is both a product of capitalism and the negation um, of capitalism. Um, this contradiction is what George Lukacs um, calls the actuality of revolution. Um, he says the theory of historical materialism therefore presupposes the universal actuality of the proletarian um, revolution. Um, so if this is the case, um, if work, working class does play this um, particular role under capitalism, then why do people hold such ideas that actually run completely contrary um, to their interests? How can human liberation be a product of a dehumanizing system? And what is the process by which we become sort of class conscious? And I sort of define that as being aware of sort of, the working class being aware of its own revolutionary capability and ability to act upon that capability. Um, So first I wanted to start by where ideas, where do ideas come from? Um, Marx wrote in the German ideology that the ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas. The ideas, which is the ruling material force of society, is at the same time its ruling intellectual force. The class which has the means of material production as, as it's disposable has this control at the same time over the means of mental production. Um, and what he means by mental production is obviously you think about schools, churches, newspapers, the media. Um, literally they have everything at their disposal to um, convince us of, of certain ideas. And the reason why they have to do that is that um, they're literally trying to prop up a system of a minority of people over the majority of us. Um, They actually require racist and sexist ideas to divide us from each other um, in order to maintain um, the status quo. But in addition to this, capitalism thrives off people feeling overwhelmingly powerless um, to change their lives. Um, We internalize feelings of inferiority as something sort of inherent um, within us. Um, Such feelings are the product of alienation um, under capitalism. I discussed earlier how our ability to consciously produce Um, makes us human um, and our ability to shape the world around us. But under capitalism, this process is is completely commodified. Everything we produce and create is done for someone else um, to be bought and sold um, on a market. So while workers literally produce everything that makes society function, um, our labor literally makes the world function every day, Um, the majority of the time we actually feel completely powerless, uncreative, exhausted, um, and alone so Lukács explains this process and its effects um, on our consciousness um, and he says neither objectively nor in his relation to his work does man appear as the authentic master of this process on the contrary he has a mechanical part incorporated into a mechanical system he finds it already pre-existing and self-sufficient it funct- functions independently of him and he has to conform to its laws whether he likes it or not so alienation hides the real human relations in capitalism it makes the system appear as if driven by an inhuman, kind of preordained process um, and it makes workers then feel powerless um, to do anything about it. Not to mention the kind of pure exhaustion um, under our immense workloads and the increased division of labor actually strips our work um, of of any kind of real creative thought. So um, Marx again, (laughs) factory work um, and I t- today obviously it 's not just factory work, we think about the service industry, offices, etc um, exhaust the nervous system to the uttermost. it does away with the many sided play of the muscles and confisc- confiscates every atom of freedom, both in bodily and intellectual activity. So ever felt like a monkey could do my job you know is kind of the way it 's commonly referred to. Um, I think a lot of people feel this way, and this, this type of work exhausts us physically and mentally, whether that kind of being doing the same task over and over again at a construction site or spending your entire day sorting mail, um, doing data entry. It affects our ability to think of ourselves as whole beings. We um, become, as Lukács says, sort of the mechanical parts of a mechanical process of which we have no control. So it affects how we are able to view the world and then view our own potential within that world. So Marx said that the unity of thought and action, conception and execution, hand and mind, capitalism threatened from its beginnings. So under capitalism, we are completely incapable of being whole. Um, and at the same time, and this is um, going back to sort of the contradiction, um, the working class is a very unique vantage point in understanding how capitalism works in its entirety. So at the same time that the division of labor, incre- you know, increases a sort of partial or more narrow experiences um, of us. We have the potential to actually view how the system works in its totality. Um, so, continuing on with sort of the contradictions, um, one that the ruling ideas in society, no matter how powerful, actually come into complete contradiction to our lived um, experience, um, and that two, the working class. Um, is certainly alienated in our society, but also completely dependent um, on one another. And that's true in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and in our personal friendships, um, families, um, etc. Because of this, the majority of time, we actually hold many different, even contradictory, um, ideas. What what is referred to as sort of mixed consciousness. Um, We both accept and are angered by conditions of exploitation. Um, some may think that gay marriage is wrong, but love and defend family members that come out. We, both, um, we feel both the urge to be creative and productive and actually take pride at our, at our job, but also feel exhausted and alienated um, at, that, at that place of work. These contradictions are constantly um, in battle with each other. Um, and this struggle um, within this contradiction, when expressed in activity, um, is, is how change um, begins. So um, Gramsci, um another Marxist, wrote, worker resistance signifies that the, the group in question, the social group in question, may indeed have its own conception of the world, even if only embryonic, a conception which manifests itself in action, um, and occasionally and an in flashes when the group is acting as an organic totality. So it is only when struggle erupts um, that workers can understand the real or true order of things in their place um, within it. It's only an activity that we glimpse our real potential, sort of who holds our interest um, and who does it. Um, And then it's in this process which workers become self-conscious. And not self-conscious like you're, you know, insecure, but, you know, self-conscious means that you're actually fully aware um, of the role that you um, play. And as a starting point for an understanding um, of all of society, breaking free, again, from that sort of narrow vantage point that sees the world merely from an individual um, point of view. Um, So Lukács, again, only when a historical situation has arisen in which a class must understand society if it is to assert itself, only when the fact that a class understands itself means that it understands society as a whole, and when, in consequence, the class becomes both the subject and the object of knowledge." And it's when what we are told or made to feel about how society functions comes into contradiction with our lived experience, that struggle and <clears> truth <throat> are kind of brought together. And you think about the example of Obama and change and how that kind of become, came crashing down so quickly, where there's a, the illusion and expectation of change and hope, and then the lived experience of people who have lived since Obama's election that never got to see the light of day to every, all the promises um, that were made. That, that changes people um, fundamentally. And that at the core of it, that humans ultimately learn by doing, um, or how Marx referred to it, that our being determines our consciousness. That it's through our activity that our thought and our being are, are linked. And I think this is true on in an individual level, and in some ways it's kind of already common sense in our society when you think about it, that you have the, the phrases like you have to see it to believe it, um, or the shared understanding that you learn by your mistakes um, and experience. Um, but Marxists take this understanding that we learn about the world by interacting um, with and assessing it to also help explain how mass action and mass struggle um, changes people's ideas and behaviors on a much larger larger scale. So Frederick Douglass um, famously quoted actually in the 4th of July speech um, in 1852 that without struggle um, there is no progress and I think that's true for a number of reasons. One, it will require a tremendous struggle to wrest control of society from a small and determined minority um, who have the media, military, courts, political establishment at their disposal. But it's also true that only through mass activity can human beings change their own ideas about how the world um, actually functions. um, When they're actually brought into activity alongside um, others, for the first time being able to overcome some of the divisions um, previously um, felt. And changed ideas about sort of what, again, what we're actually capable of as individuals. So over being able to overcome the feelings of powerlessness and inferiority. Um, and there, there are too many examples, certainly, to, to go through, both on an individual and personal level um, and, and historically on, the, on a collective level. And to be frankly, like this past year, very, very contemporary examples of the way in which struggle, breaking out, kind of fundamentally changes people. Um, but just sort of some individual examples, I mean, I remember, for example, um, very vividly, I think I was around 14, the first time I ever beat a boy in tennis. Um, And it had had actually a dramatic impact on me personally, not just because I was like insanely competitive as a female athlete, but it influenced my ideas about what girls were capable of in relationship um, to boys. And I think having the opportunity to grow up as sort of a female athlete meant (laughs) that I was just far less accepting of some of the sexist ideas about young women, how I was supposed to look and act, um, etc. But I think for us is that those kinds of experiences, that kind of understanding on an individual, personal level, will actually never be enough to overcome sexism um, in society. So not only do we need these experiences on a mass level, but we need collective action on the part of both men and women to fight even for the opportunity to have such experiences, right? So I actually wouldn't have had that experience as a female athlete without Title IX coming into being, which is like was a part of the Civil Rights Act. Um, in the 1970s, that allow young women to play sports in schools um, in the first place. Um, so, as I said before, that um, the conditions of capitalism produce resistance. That Marxist things that struggle is actually inevitable, something to be anticipated. Um, but workers do not necessarily um, like to struggle. It's not something that people enjoy going out um, actually on strike. It's that the conditions of capitalism actually compel them um, to do so. So. Um, one great story is that there's a woman, um, Vicki Starr, who was um, organizing, um, organizing unions for the first time in the 1930s. She describes this sort of process, I think, very well. And she says, when I look back now, um, I really think we had a lot of guts. But I didn't even stop to think about it at the time. It was just something that had to be done. We had a goal. That's what we felt like we had to be done, and we did it. I think you get a sense of, sort of how this sort of capitalist sort of compels people to struggle. There comes a certain point when people just kind of feel like they have no other um, choice but to walk out. Um, and there are many, of course, moments in history where you see um, great changes sort of in the material conditions followed by great leaps in consciousness amongst those involved. And history actually rarely tells the tale of the kind of slow evolution of thought, but instead witnesses mass explosions and resistance um, accompanied by significant changes um, and ideas of those involved. And you even think about how we kind of understand um, history, even as sort of radicals and revolutionaries, as kind of these, these kind of years are, are put together, these years that kind of created pretty significant changes about know, 1917, the 1930s, 1968, and, you know, I think we're all proud to say maybe, you know, 2011 can be, one, I think will be one of those um, years, certainly. Um, and another another woman, she was a populist activist in the 1880s. Um, she was part of organizing farmers against the big banks that were taking land um, away in, in the mm-hmm. South. Um, and she sort of talks about this sort of process um, as well. She says, we are living in a grand and wonderful time, Um A time when old ideas, traditions, and customs have broken loose from their moorings and are hopelessly adrift on the great shoreless, boundless seal of human thought. A time when the gray old world begins to dimly comprehend that there is no difference between the brain of an intelligent man and the brain of an intelligent woman. The mighty dynamite of thought is upheaving the social and political structure and stirring the hearts of men from center to circumference. Men, women, and children are in commotion, discussing the mighty problems of the day. The agricultural classes, loyal and patriotic, slow to act and think, are today thinking for themselves, and their thought has crystallized into action. So the experience of the populace of organizing together to protect farmers, men, women, black and white, changed their ideas about um, each other. It was one, actually one of the first examples of working class whites and blacks actually organizing together um, on, a, on, a, on a mass scale. Um, so capitalism, again, oppresses us and compels us to resist actually collectively. Um, in the process of struggle, you will learn to rely um, on each other. And the process of self-organization, which is what's necessary to actually resist under capitalism, actually teaches us many things. Um, organizing skills, how to interact and talk with people um, that might be very different um, from us. Um, the process of being able to convince other people to join you, um, and that despite everything that you're taught, beginning to learn that workers from different sexes and races um, actually have a common um, interest. Um, and one um, one last sort of story, or historical example, um, a woman, Genora Johnson, who is a female activist and one of the leaders of the Flint sit-down strikes uh, in 1936, she sort of discusses the way in which that strike um, change relationships between men and women and when the strike first began she went down to help um and the male workers told her immediately um that they needed help in the kitchen um and she refused um and instead began organizing that was just kind of common sense like a woman comes down to picket line like great we ha-, you know we needed food you know so that was sort of just sort of the instinct i think for many at the time um, she refused and then began organizing picket lines of women that eventually battled with the cops outside of the factories to defend um, the strike, a strike that that ended up winning. Um, So this is what she says about the aftermath of that strike. She says, following the strike, the auto worker became a different human being. The women that had participated actively became a different type of woman, a different type from any we had ever known anywhere in the labor movement, and certainly in the city of Flint. They carried themselves with a different walk, their heads were high, and they had confidence in themselves. They were not only mentally different, but physically different. If you saw one of those women in the beginning and then saw her just a short period of time after going through this experience, learning and feeling that she had things she could fit together in her life, it would be an entirely different woman. And I think it's a beautiful passage, and it it describes the way in which working class struggle unites sections of a class normally divided from each other. And it's sort of a glimpse of sort of the process of how that gets broken um, down. I can't imagine she got axed ever. Asked to go back um, into any kitchen. Um, that's for sure. Um, and I just, I just came. I wasn't gonna. Okay. Um, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I just went to the um, the talk on the labor wars of the 1990s um, and heard Dan Lane had the honor of hearing Dan Lane speak. Everyone should go get that recording if you weren't able to make that meeting. He was a striking decatur worker. Um, who struck in 1993, and he talked a lot about this as well. He talked about sort of the radicalization that took place, and this is a strike that ended in in defeat um, for them. And he talks about what they did to try to build strike solidarity and strike support because they were locked out and needed to raise lots of money as they had a group called the Road Warriors that would go around and tour the country in order to build um, solidarity for the strike. And he talked about how that experience of going to different places, it it had a profound influence on the people who, who were actually hearing the story of the strike for the first time, but also, like, I felt what was incredible was actually that the transforming experience that I had on the Decatur strikers going to different parts of the world and hearing the stories of other people. And he gave two examples. One, speaking to... Um, some Central American women who worked in the textile factories, and after sh- actually sharing stories, him f- actually f- feeling like he didn't want to take their money, that he actually should be figuring out a way to actually raise money um, for them. Um, but instead, and they were speaking in Spanish, and he couldn't quite tell what they were saying, thought he were translating the experience. You know, they end up buying 10 of the T-shirts in order to kind of, you know, make sure that they were giving solidarity um, um, to him. And then he gave another story, similarly of the road warriors, and you know, he described these guys as kind of most stereotypical kind of white workers, you know, um, from Decatur, Illinois. um going to um, Harlem um, to to tour there as well, and sort of sleeping on the floors, the couches of a lesbian couple, and it was just it would just transform these people, you know what I mean, and, and transform the women. You know, I'm sure who who hosted them, and that that. Those kinds of experiences that through the act of struggle and being able to actually build solidarity for what you're doing that it actually transforms um, people, and you actually can't go back from that. You know what I mean? Like what you experience—it's um, actually hard to take that away um, from people, even when you even when you lose. Uh, so collective action—I'll um, I'll skip the next quote because I think that the dictator story is, is uh, much more powerful and, um, and much more recent. But I think the um, the significance of it is that it's it's the way in which, de- even in defeat, um, people's ideas um, change, that people are radicalized. But it's not just the case that through victory followed by more victories, people just kind of gain this, accumulate this kind of level of confidence and just become more and more inspired until we're ready to kind of tear the whole thing down. That it's actually the experience of defeat as well as victory that teaches us how to fight and ultimately, uh, and more importantly, possibly how to win. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about this and then I sh- I'll, I'll wrap up. Um which is that it's true that Marxists believe that resistance is inevitable um, under under capitalism, but victory and lasting change for our side is not. Um, Struggle opens up the possibility for massive changes in consciousness, but does not ever guarantee that such change in consciousness automatically will actually go in our direction even. Um, The key determinant within any struggle is a subjective role that individuals and organizations play in shaping that direction. More specifically, the possibility to advance struggles from being struggles against just one aspect um, of capitalism into sort of a revolutionary struggle against all of capitalism. And so, of course, that begs sort of the question about how do workers go um, and become um, more radical um, in their understanding of the world around them? How do workers, changed by the experience of struggles, become leaders um, in, in that struggle and in their own? Um, liberation and i think here and this is where i'll kind of um and the last point i made is like the role of organization sort of subjective role um in that process so chris nineham who wrote um this is a really great book it's brand new um it's kind of like a pamphlet um it's called capitalism and class consciousness the ideas of george lukacs um and it's just published last year um and it's quite good and short um quick read um he wrote Um, If working people need to play a consciously directing role in the liberation, then they need new institutions that allow um, active mass participation in politics. So in short, we need independent organizations um, of workers and revolutionaries in order to be able to come together and democratically discuss the world and direction um, of our fight. So the ideas that have to be organized in order to have um, an impact. And the first reason for this is, is to help overcome what, we sort of, what I described is sort of the mixed or uneven consciousness. Um, it will never be the case that individuals will come to the same conclusions at the same time. Um, there are inevitably going to be workers and students that have come to more radical conclusions about the world um, because of their experiences. Um, and these people then have to be organized if we have any chance of then radicalizing and organizing and directing the kind of greater numbers um, beyond us. We need both independent mass organizations for working people to take part in and fight for reforms, like the end of the death penalty, for example, the campaign the death penalty. Um, But we also need revolutionary organization made up of the most militant and radical um, people that are uncompromising in in the revolutionary outlook and attention um, that stays determined to then get rid of the system that produces prisons um, in the first place. Um, So Marx explains the role of revolutionary organization um, in this way. Um, This is from the Communist Manifesto. He says... The communists are distinguished from other working class parties by this only. One, in the national struggles of the proletarians of different countries, they point out and bring to the fore the common interests of the entire proletariat, independent of all nationality. Two, in the various stages of the development which the struggle of the working class against the bourgeoisie has to pass through, they always and everywhere represent the interest of the movement as a whole. The communists, therefore, are on the one hand practically the most advanced and resolute section of the working class, that section which pushes forward all the others. On the other hand, theoretically, they have over the great mass of the proletariat the advantage of clearly understanding the line of march, the conditions, and the ultimate general results um, of the proletarian movement. They are, in other words, the tangible embodiment of proletarian class consciousness. So while workers, um, through their participation in mass struggle, sort of contain revolutionary instincts um, and impulses, the organization is key to help push and radicalize and develop all resistance um, to the conditions of capitalism into a a much larger um, fight. Um, So again... um, Lukács, I think this part, this part is important, um, too, that the proletariat wants to win the struggle and must encourage and support every tendency which contributes to the breakup of bourgeois society and do its utmost to enlist every upsurge, no matter how instinctive or confused, into the revolutionary process um, as a whole. So as revolutionaries, we don't pick and choose what fights we think um, are, are the right ones. We actually seek to, to radicalize and help push and be take part of and learn from every one that what Lukacs calls sort of the breakup of bourgeois society. Um, So revolutionary organization must then contain a constant interaction and struggle between theory and practice and then assessment um, of that practice. Um, It means that such an organization must be built in advance and actually in anticipation of um, struggle. It must be tested by movements that have come before and have won political leadership amongst workers based on a sort of a shared and common experience. And us be able to figure out concretely how to apply Marxism um, to the concrete circumstances um, to make sense of our everyday life and the next steps um, necessary in order um, to change us. And I, our history is plagued by examples certainly of missed opportunities, um, upsurges with revolutionary potential that never were fully realized. Um, but how workers become fit to rule involves workers on a mass scale becoming sort of a revolutionary um, class. Um, I think that the, the key thing here is that this process is a process. It's not something that is learned by one struggle, or one event, um, or one occupation, or certainly one, one strike. Um, direct participation in leadership and struggle, and eventually sort of a revolutionary process, is necessary um, if, we, if we have any chance um, at all. So if we're trying to build a movement based on the self-emancipation of the working class, being the act of the working class, um then we have to have experience in this um in this process so um i think in the in mass strikes and revolutions throughout history this often takes the forms of sort of worker workers councils um what in russia were called soviets in paris the commune and today in egypt the sort of workplace and neighborhood committees that have popped up um all over um and workers control sort of I think both sort of points to sort of a new way of organizing production to those involved, but also sort of the release of human creativity on on a pretty massive um, scale. So often these sort of, these begin, the the process of sort of taking control um, of our lives and of production um, is often based on sort of the most immediate needs of a movement or a situation, but then begins to develop um, beyond, beyond this. And the first time I have ever directly experienced this was when I had the opportunity to occupy Um, the capitol building in madison last february um and i think that again it was the same sort of process which is sort of it started by as many people know sort of a sick out by teachers um that then sort of went to the capitol building itself and created what we know we now saw on the news and experience um as sort of a mass occupation, but how people began to then transform that from not not just a protest, but into an occupation where things became actually more more self sufficient and controlled from below by those people involved, kind of started from just some basic things where you get to a capital building like, well, how are people going to know where the bathroom is when they come to the occupation? We're going to have a committee, you know what I mean? It's making sure that the bathrooms are stocked with toilet paper and tampons and you know whatever else is needed. We want everyone be able to participate. How are people going to come with children and still take part? We're going to organize childcare centers, et cetera. How do we want to make sure that everyone is recognized here? We're going to have a people's mic in the beginning. That, that, that the beginnings of that kind of self-organization and self-activity often begins by the most immediate needs um, in a movement. But then that experience, then you, you start to transform through that experience. You're like, wait a minute. You know what I mean? Like, this is a people's mic, you know what I mean, where everyone gets to speak. Why isn't all of government running this way? Like, I'm in a Capitol building, this is, feels like democracy to me, you know what I mean? And it, we begin to kind of call into question this kind of formal democracy that we so-called, you know, we live in. Actually, that's why I think the kind of chant, of this is what democracy looks like, was the most popular chant by far of anyone in there. And, I, you know, I hear that people, you know, taxi drivers to this day, you can, you know, go in Madison, that's what they're beeping on their horn is that chant, like this is what democracy looked like. Because I think that experience profoundly changed people's ideas about what democracy is and what, what it isn't. Um, but then I think it's taken to another level when it enters the workplace, when it enters the, the realm of strikes. Right? That's something <coughs> we didn't actually experience um, um, in Madison. And in fact, we was sort of derailed um, into more of a recall um, campaign. But when it does... Okay, so I'll wrap up. Um, into the workplace, I think it has much more um, potential. And you see glimpses of that, and I won't go into this, maybe I'll talk about it more in the wrap-up. But then you talk about the mass strikes of Seattle in 1919. Where, you know, literally had workers kind of going from a position of striking, which is a withdrawal of labor, to actually transforming labor in order to actually completely run an entire city is a fundamentally different, um, it's a fundamentally different kind of understanding of your role in society, which is sort of recognizing your power in society lies from your labor, but also that means that you have the power to remake society and run it on fundamentally different interests. And you see the glimpses of this a lot in sort of mass strikes um, that... um, that become and create a sort of consciousness about how you're actually fit um, to rule. So becoming fit to rule is about overcoming alienation. It's about human beings realizing their full potential um, by taking control of production, our ability to produce and care for one another, and taking back control of this process about reclaiming our humanity. Um, and I think is our only chance of experiencing and unleashing what we're truly capable of. So that ultimately our ability to realize Socialism comes from our ability um, to experience um, and struggle um, for it. Thanks. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.